Hello again, everyone. As you may be aware by now, True Crime Fix is now on Patreon. I've already posted the first bonus content on the $5 level. So if you want to come and join me and take a walk through the key areas of the Sofia Savodska case, please visit www.patreon.com forward slash podcast. That is www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast if you do you'll be able to get your fix a little earlier just like suzanne who has joined since the last episode thank you for your assistance in keeping this podcast going and free for the masses so that's www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast and now on to this week's case Hi, this is Kat with Haunting History Podcast, and I'm here to tell you about what's new in Season 3. This season, we're doing something a little different. We're investigating, researching, and telling you the story of a missing person's case as we go along. You'll join us as we talk to detectives, private investigators, coroner's offices, file clerks, librarians, and the family members whose lives are changed by a disappearance that happened 40 years ago and most likely spending an unhealthy amount of time on Ancestry.com. You, our listeners, are going to be with us as we get the case, and then as we find, meet, and talk to the people behind the story. We're starting the season with a ton of questions and zero answers, and we have no idea how it's going to end. What we do know is this family deserves to know what happened. Join us by emailing, messaging, and commenting with your thoughts, suggestions, and ideas. We want your help. Someone out there knows something. Help us find that someone. Season 3 starts Tuesday, June 11th with the disappearance of Deborah Lynn. I'm Lars, and unlike every other suburban white man, I have a podcast. It's called Rusty Hinges, and it has inexplicably made it to Season 2. In Season 1, we talked murder, mayhem, mystery, and hoaxes. I think we'll stick with this winning combination. Look for a Rusty Hinges episode on the murders of Isidore Fink and Letitia Turow, two famous locked room mysteries. Get lost in the woods with the good people of Bennington, Vermont. And join me as we follow the path of a man we all briefly believe lives the American dream of launching his kid into the sky in a balloon. You can find Rusty Hinges wherever you find great podcasts. Well, you can also find it where you find terrible podcasts. That's Rusty Hinges. It's a podcast. Go listen. True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hi everyone, and welcome to our 17th case together. Before we go any further, 
please, if you've liked the show so far, remember to subscribe on your chosen podcast directory and the new episodes will download automatically for you upon release. When covering these cases, where the focus is on the victim, never did I believe that someone close to me may be personally affected by the story. In this case, a member of the victim's family was known by my wife and therefore we were very sceptical about writing this. However, Ashley agreed to work with me to write this in Sally Ann's memory and ensure that her story is never forgotten. Have you ever left a loved one on a bad note? Have you ever had an argument with a spouse or partner which you have left unresolved? Have you ever considered that it may be the last thing that you ever say to them? This episode will show you just how devastating it can be to just walk away. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this episode is dedicated to the memory of Sally Ann Bowman. Sally Ann Bowman was born on the 11th of September 1987 in St Helier Hospital in the town of Carshalton, which is in the county of Surrey. Carshalton is a town with a historic, picturesque centre and comes under the London borough of Sutton, approximately 10 miles southwest of Charing Cross. Sally Ann was the youngest child of Linda and Paul Bowman. While Sally Ann was growing up, she was taken under the wing of her older half-sisters, Danielle, Nicole and Michelle, and all four were very close. They looked after each other, particularly when their mother, Linda, separated from Sally Ann's father, Paul, when she was 11. Sally Ann attended Cheam Fields Primary School before moving to Cheam High, where she focused on drama and music. Sally Ann was an extremely talented singer and won a placement at the prestigious Brit School for Performing Arts and Technology in Croydon. Brit stands for the British Record Industry Trust. Established in 1992, famous alumni of the school include singers Adele, Amy Winehouse and Jessie J, as well as actors Tom Holland and Blake Harrison. Sally Ann had had dreams of one day becoming an icon, a singer and a model. She dreamed of appearing on the cover of Vogue and had previously appeared on the catwalk. Her facial features had been compared to those of supermodel Kate Moss on many occasions. Sally Ann had assembled a portfolio of work and, according to her sister, top modelling agencies had begun to show an interest in her. While Sally Ann gained her qualifications in theatre studies, drama, maths and English, she worked at a hairdressing salon called Blasts in Croydon, where colleagues said she was a very lively and happy girl. She enrolled on a hairstyling course at Carshalton College, which she never completed. In January 2005, Sally Ann began a new journey with Pulse Model Management a local modelling agency 
which propelled her career forward. She became the face of Swatch Watches and took part in the Swatch Alternative Fashion Week in April 2005 and a scout from a top agency, Premier, expressed an interest in signing her. She described her experience there. I was so nervous all week, particularly when the models were lined up and the designers chose who they wanted to model their clothes. Luckily, I was picked by loads of designers, which gave me more confidence. She also impressed photographer Simon Klein, who said, She had an easy, natural command of the catwalk and was a dream because you knew you would get good photos. Sally Ann moved out of her parents' house at the age of 16 and lived for a time with her boyfriend, Louis Sproston. She may have moved out of the family home, but she remained very close to her family, especially her sisters. Sally Ann and her boyfriend had recently been on holiday to Coz to celebrate her 18th birthday. However, Sally Ann and Lewis's relationship had gone through a rough patch. It was well known that both Sally Ann and Lewis were both insecure in their relationship and were very jealous of the other's interaction with the opposite sex. The couple broke up just after they returned from holiday. Sally Ann moved out of the property that she shared with Lewis and rented a room in Blenheim Crescent with Donna Sherwood, who she had met through her hairdressing work. Her mum Linda said, Sally Ann was a happy-go-lucky type of girl who was not afraid of speaking her mind. She could be very stubborn and opinionated. Although slightly built, she could be very argumentative and aggressive. She was naive and childish as she was a teenager, but she was a genuinely warm-hearted girl who adored children. On the 24th of September 2005, Sally Ann was invited out with her sister Nicole and friends for a birthday celebration. Sally Ann had spent the day at her mum's house lazing around on the sofa in her pink fluffy dressing gown and generally having a rest day. Having turned 18 two weeks earlier, Sally Ann was finally able to go out and legally enjoy herself as an adult. But she was by no means extravagant and made one glass of white wine last all night. As she left for the evening, she gave Linda a hug and said, Love you, Mum, thanking her for the company during the day and promised to send her a text message about how she was getting home. Sally Ann, who spent most of her money on her fledgling modelling career, refused to go out looking anything less than perfect. So she dressed in a denim skirt, a white crop top, a white belt and white high-heeled shoes. She was carrying a white Prada handbag and a white cardigan, which she had taken off because it was too warm outside. She also was wearing a pink bracelet her ex-boyfriend Lewis had bought for her. At 10pm on the 24th of September 2005, Sally Ann, her older sister Nicole and a group of friends went to the Milan Bar in Croydon, which is part of the Weatherspoons chain, where they stayed until 1am. 
there is CCTV from the bar showing Sally Ann drinking, dancing and laughing. Nicole stated it was a normal great night out. Sally Ann was said to have spent a lot of time on the phone to her ex-boyfriend as they hadn't long split up at this point and emotions were still high. Lewis had gone out with friends to the nearby town of Kingston. Sally Ann's mum Linda called the couple the Posh and Becks of Sutton Borough. She claimed Lewis was a good typical teenage boy who worked hard. After leaving the bar, Sally Ann waited outside for 15 minutes before being taken to her sister's house by taxi. Sally Ann decided that she wanted to see Lewis so she manufactured a story to get him to come back and pick her up from Croydon. She claimed that Nicole had been arrested for fighting and that she was stranded with no way of getting home. Lewis eventually caved in and left his friends and drove the 12 miles back to Croydon, where he met Sally Ann. Bidding her sister goodbye, Sally Ann took a cab from her sister's back into Croydon. When Lewis arrived, she got in his car. Even though he did not believe her story, he still met with Sally Ann to ensure that she got home safely. Alas, just like most young people fresh from a breakup, they argued in the car on the drive back to Sally Ann's house in Blenheim Crescent, each accusing the other of seeing other people, which is what contributed to their recent breakup. The arguments and accusations continued for around an hour after they parked up at Blenheim Crescent. Eventually, at around 4am, Sally Ann claimed she had had enough and stormed out of the car and into the night. Lewis called after her to get her to get back in the car, but when she did not respond, he decided to call it a night and eventually drove off. At 4.15am, barely 10 yards from her front door, Sally Ann was brutally attacked. Her assailant was armed with a knife and stabbed her seven times, some of which were so forceful they had an entry and an exit wound. Her screams are heard by a couple of neighbours at 4.20am, but unfortunately, much like the Kitty Genovese case in episode 5, no one came to Sally Ann's aid. The scream, however, startled the attacker. Hesitating, he waited in the bushes for any lights to come on. When no one came, he continued his sadistic attack. On the 25th of September 2005, at around 6.30am, one of Sally Ann's neighbours walked outside of her house and could see what she would later describe as a pair of mannequin legs from behind a skip. Thinking that it was local youths playing a practical joke, the neighbour went to investigate and found Sally's half-naked body laying on the floor covered in blood. The police were called immediately and a crime scene was established. Once the heartbreaking news had been broken to Sally Ann's family, Nicole told the police that Lewis was the last person they believed to have seen Sally Ann. During her initial police interview, 
Sally-Ann's neighbour reported hearing a scream and a gargle early in the morning, but when she looked out of the window, she couldn't see anything. The police team, led by Detective Superintendent Stuart Cundy, launched a murder investigation. It is, at the time, one of the largest ever undertaken by the Metropolitan Police Service. As they make their inquiries, one person starts to stand out as the potential killer. It's Lewis Sproston, Sally Ann's ex-boyfriend and the last person to have seen her alive. The following day, the post-mortem of Sally Ann Bowman takes place and it is established that she has been stabbed in the neck and the stomach and she was raped. Sally Ann had seven stab wounds and three entry and exit wounds. The blade of the knife was long enough to penetrate through her body. Horrific bite marks were also found on Sally Ann's cheek, neck and right nipple. It was revealed by the investigation team that her handbag, cardigan, underwear and mobile phone had also been stolen. Was this killer taking trophies? Lewis was arrested on the suspicion of murder on the afternoon of Sunday the 26th of September. When questioned, he appeared to inadvertently confess when he asked the police, is this about last night? The detectives believed that they have their man when Lewis confessed that he and Sally Ann had argued before he left her in Blenheim Crescent. But Lewis was in fact unaware of Sally Ann's death, to the extent that it wasn't until he was arrested and cautioned for a murder that he learnt of the death of the girl that he loved. Crucially, DNA from the actual perpetrator was recovered from Sally Ann's body, so all the police believed they needed to do was match the sample to Lewis. Lewis was held for four days in prison, pending the result of the DNA evidence from the scene. The DNA swab that he provided when he was arrested, however, eliminated him as a suspect, and he was released without charge. On the 29th of September, the police confirmed that the DNA found on Sally Ann had been matched to a 2001 cold case. In that case, a woman from Purley, which is less than a mile and a half from where Sally Ann lived, was making a call in a telephone box when a man exposed himself to her. He then performed an indecent act, openly masturbating and more disturbingly tried to get inside the telephone box. In the process of this act, the perpetrator ejaculated and DNA was obtained from the semen which was left at the scene. The literal and figurative wanker was never caught. However, the victim got a good look at his face as it haunted her for a long time after. The next day, investigators revealed that the killer may have been responsible for an earlier attack on Sandersted Road, just 40 yards from the murder scene. At around 3.30am, 
approximately 45 minutes before Sally Ann was killed, a 36-year-old woman pulled over to use her mobile phone. Having no signal, she got out of her car. As she did, she noticed a man approaching her. Whilst focusing on what she was doing and trying to avoid eye contact, she saw the knife. Believing that she was being robbed, she held out her handbag. But the man just said, Sorry, before beating her over the head with an iron bar. During the attack, a taxi passes the parked up car. Upon seeing the attack, the driver uses his car horn, startling the attacker into running away, but the victim's phone is stolen. The lady was taken by taxi to the police station and a full report was conducted. After being given first aid at the station, she realised that she'd been bitten. On the 5th of October, a series of computer-generated e-fits are issued, compiled with the help of the 36-year-old who was robbed and beaten with the iron bar, as well as the woman who had been the subject of the phone box attack four years earlier. The police release CCTV footage of Sally Ann on her night out in Croydon, just before she was killed, and it was shown on BBC One's Crime Watch programme. The more I talk about Crime Watch week in and week out, I really miss it. I've even tried to start a Twitter campaign for the BBC to bring it back, but I think that I failed miserably. Sorry, just off on a little bit of a tangent there. The show's phone lines were soon flooded with over 120 calls after her sisters Danielle and Nicole made an emotional appeal for help and a reward of up to £20,000 was offered on the show. On October the 12th, Sally Ann's father Paul made his own emotional appeal for her killer to hand himself in whilst remembering his beautiful bubbly daughter. On the 15th of October, Linda, Sally Ann's mother, spoke to the press of the heartbreak that she was feeling and made her own plea for help to catch the killer. With still no news about her murderer, and even the new leads starting to cool off, Sally Ann's funeral took place on Friday the 4th of November at Croydon Cemetery and Crematorium. She was carried into the cemetery grounds shortly before 2.15pm in a white carriage which was being pulled by two white horses with pink and purple feathers adorning their manes. Sally Ann's name in pink flowers decorated the Victorian style hearse. During the well-attended service, white doves were released shortly before Sally Ann's body was cremated. Her ashes were later laid to rest in the Garden of Remembrance. Although the case had been featured before briefly, on December the 13th, a full reconstruction of the last known movements of the morning of the 25th of September was shown on BBC's Crime Watch. The reconstruction showed the man who killed her 
returning to the scene of the crime soon after stabbing her. I will see if I can find an online version of this episode and post it to the True Crime Fix discussion Facebook page. Police also said during the episode that the perpetrator might have used Sally Ann's mobile phone to take pictures of the murder scene. Despite the fact that the episode was viewed by between 5 and 6 million people, no new leads were obtained by the police. The trail was starting to go cold. With the evidence that the police had, they decided the murderer must have been a resident of the local area. But, as the DNA found on Sally Ann's body had not registered a hit on the National DNA Database, the police struggled to move the case forward. On the 23rd of February 2006, the police announced that they were opening a DNA screening unit in the vicinity of where the crime had taken place and they were calling on over 4,000 residents to supply their DNA. Their thought process was that they would catch a break and would link the DNA to the killer via a familial match. They were not working on the assumption that the killer would just hand himself in and supply his own DNA. On February the 27th, further details were given as the officers opened the DNA screening centre in South Croydon. Due to the description of the perpetrator that they had, they were asking local men who were white or light-skinned and born between 1965 and 1985 to provide their DNA voluntarily. Hundreds came forward during the initial screening but the police did not have any positive results. On March the 22nd, 2006, a new EFIT is released due to an advance in the detail the software could now go into. A day later, on March the 23rd, police said they wanted to question a former customer of the hair salon where Sally Ann used to work, who had an Australian accent. However, the hope that the killer would be brought to justice was starting to reduce for the family. New cases were coming in to the Metropolitan Police all the time and the resources that were on Sally Ann's case were starting to be reassigned. On April the 5th, a fresh appeal was broadcast on every true crime enthusiast's favourite show, Crime Watch, based around the new EFIT. As a result, on April the 28th, detectives announced that they were trying to track down a man who could provide crucial evidence about the brutal murder. He subsequently gave the police the name of a possible suspect, but that person had already been ruled out of the inquiry. The case again was still not moving any further forward. Until... On Thursday the 15th of June 2006, England were playing Trinidad and Tobago in the 2006 FIFA World Cup and as it appears that the game was going to draw to a drab, nil-nil conclusion, all of a sudden, seven minutes from the end, Peter Crouch scored the opening goal for England who eventually would go on to win the match 2-nil. 
watching the game in a Sussex pub was 35-year-old chef Mark Dixie with his friends. When Crouch scored, an innocent man in the process of celebrating spills his pint all over him. Dixie erupts into a violent outburst. He gets the man outside where, in full view of two police support officers, he pushes him and tries to take a swing at him. The act sees him get arrested and taken to Crawley Police Station. There, he is duly processed for assault and a DNA swab is taken. Ted Bundy got caught after a simple driving error. And this simple act of violence will be all the police need to crack the now nine and a half month old cold case. Mark Dixie's DNA comes back as a match to that which had been found on Sally Ann's body. Luckily for the police, Dixie had given them the right address when he was released on bail. He had been living and working at Ye Oldie Six Bells Pub on Church Road in Hawley, Surrey, less than two miles from London Gatwick Airport. His job, bearing in mind the equipment that Dixie would be surrounded with, made his arrest problematic. So the police decided to create a story to get him out of the kitchen. When they arrived at the pub, however, they got lucky because as the two officers turned around as they were getting out of the car, they noticed Dixie taking a cigarette break outside the back door of the kitchen. They took their opportunity there and then to arrest him. On the 28th of June 2006, Mark Dixie was finally arrested on the suspicion of murdering Sally Ann Bowman. He stayed calm and unfazed by the whole procedure. Disturbingly, one of the officers reported how Dixie's heart rate failed to change during the arrest process, which he found incredibly chilling. The officers who arrested him took him in for questioning and he still gave the aura of being cold and emotionless. Dixie answers no comment to every question asked during his initial interview. Upon closer inspection of his room back at Ye Olde Six Bells pub, following his arrest, police made a sickening discovery. They found that this vile monster had been masturbating to photos and video footage of Sally Ann Bowman reliving her brutal and callous murder. He was charged with Sally Ann's murder and remanded in custody whilst he awaited trial. After inputting Dixie's details into the police database, they saw how dangerous he really was. He had several assault cases, robbery, indecent exposure and various other charges dating back years. So what do we know about Dixie? Mark Philip Dixie was born on the 24th of September 1970 in Streatham, South London. 
when he was 18 months old, his parents separated. When he was eight years old, his mother remarried and she had two sons by her new husband. Dixie adopted his stepfather's surname, MacDonald, after his mother had remarried. Dixie's criminal record began in 1986, when he was 16 years old, and between 1986 and 1990, he was found guilty on charges relating to robbery, burglary, assaulting a police officer, and assault occasioning actual bodily harm. He moved to Australia in January 1993 and remained there until he was deported back to the UK in April 1999 after being fined for indecent exposure. He lived in London until moving to Spain in 2002, but more about his exploits there a little later in the episode. He returned to England on a permanent basis in 2003. After more than 18 months on remand, the trial of Mark Dixie took place at the Old Bailey in London, commencing on the 4th of February 2008. Mr Justice Gerald Gordon was presiding. Mr Anthony Glass, QC, represented Dixie, whilst Mr Brian Altman, QC, was representing the Crown. Mark Dixie pled not guilty to the charge of murder. Jurors were warned at the start of the trial that they were going to be subjected to horrific details about the night of Sally Ann's killing. They had to be warned by the judge to try the case coolly, calmly and without emotion. The first thing that Mr Glass QC tried to do was to pin the murder on Sally Ann's ex-boyfriend, Lewis. Mr Glass described that Dixie stated he found Sally Ann in her driveway and took advantage of the situation to have sex with the body after having been on a night out for his birthday. He was drunk and under the influence of Class A drugs. Lewis Sproston came under heavy fire during the cross-examination by the defence after the jury had been told that he had initially been arrested for the murder. Mr Glass asked him, Did you lose your temper and kill her? Lewis replied, No. The court heard that when Lewis was arrested the day after the murder, he asked the police, Is this about the row with my girlfriend last night? Mr Glass asked Lewis if he had a guilty conscience about what had happened. He replied, Not really. I thought she made it home. I thought she was perfectly well and healthy. It was all just a normal argument. Mr Glass asked him, Had you left her for dead or dying? Lewis replied, Are you being serious? No. The prosecutor, Brian Altman, while speaking about Dixie, said That, astonishingly, is his defence to murder. It is a defence born out of desperation. Mr Altman reiterated 
the defendant confessed that he had sex with Sally Ann after her death. He says he just happened to be in Blenheim Crescent under the influence of drink and drugs. His case is that someone else stabbed her to death, leaving her in her own pool of blood, that someone else murdered her. The idea that in one and the same place, there was not only a homicidal maniac who motively stabbed a young woman to death, but also a sex offender, is a ludicrous claim born out of desperation. Having sexual intercourse with Sally Ann in that state and in those circumstances is simply so beyond the pale as to be pure fiction. The prosecution say his defence is quite fantastic, a smokescreen calculated by him to fool you into believing that he did not kill her. Dixie subjected Sally Ann's body to other indignities. Inexplicably, he inserted small pieces of concrete rubble into her mouth and another part of her body. Later it would be revealed that he had done this to try and get rid of his DNA. The prosecutor echoed the judge's warning at the start and warned the jury that the photographs they will see will graphically portray the grim reality of her death. Mark Dixie was found guilty of Sally Ann's murder by unanimous verdict on the 22nd of February 2008, after three hours of jury deliberation. He was sentenced to life imprisonment with a recommended minimum of 34 years, meaning that he is unlikely to be considered for parole until at least 2040, by which time he will be 70 years of age. This is among the longest minimum terms ever imposed upon a single murderer in the UK. Judge Gordon told Dixie, I shall only say that what you did that night was so awful and repulsive that I do not propose to repeat it. Your consequent conduct shows you had not the slightest remorse for what you have done. Sally Ann's family cheered as the verdict was announced. The last two and a half years have been torturously painful and immensely difficult, Paul Bowman said. I do not think we could have got through it without the love and support that has been hugely available from family and friends. I hope that now Sally Ann can rest in peace and those affected so deeply by her untimely and brutal death can be afforded at least the chance to begin to grieve in earnest. Dixie bowed his head down and nodded as he was told his sentence. Friends and family of Sally Ann shouted down from the public gallery as Dixie was taken down. One said, Rot in hell, you pervert. Another yelled, I'll see you again. Dixie just called back, Come on, both of you. Detective Superintendent Stuart Cundy, who led the investigation, 
said that the crime was one of the most horrific sexual attacks in British history and said Dixie's defence was truly contemptible. Mark Dixie faces a life behind bars, a result that ensures that the public are protected from a truly dangerous sexual killer, Cundy said. Sally Ann was a young woman who had a whole life ahead of her. Mark Dixie cut that life short in the most horrific way imaginable. It is my opinion that a national DNA register, with all of its appropriate safeguards, could have identified Sally Ann's murderer within 24 hours. Instead, it took nearly nine months before Mark Dixie was identified and almost two and a half years for justice to be done. The calls for such a register, however, were turned down by ministers and other politicians who claimed that it would raise practical as well as civil liberty issues. Linda Bowman has continued to call for a national DNA register to be introduced. But this was not the end of the revelations about Dixie. There was also crimes in Spain where an innocent male, Romano van der Dusen, was jailed instead. In 2007, Dixie's DNA was matched to the rape of a woman and attempted rape of two others in Fuengarola, near the city of Malaga in Spain in 2003. Van der Dusen had already been sentenced to 15 years in prison and the Spanish authorities were slow on rectifying this miscarriage of justice. Van der Dusen was finally exonerated and freed in February 2016 after spending over 12 years in prison. Linda Bowman said that she was dismayed at the thought that if the Spanish authorities had investigated the case more thoroughly, her daughter might be still alive. She told the Mail Online, I'm absolutely appalled an innocent man has spent 12 years of a 15-year sentence in prison for a crime that he did not commit. I feel very strongly that if the Spanish authorities had done their jobs properly, my Sally Ann would still be alive. In October 2006, Dixie's DNA was also sent to Western Australia to be tested against that of the DNA evidence collected in the Claremont serial killer case where the crimes had taken place between 1996 and 1997 as it was believed he was in the area at the time of the killings and may have committed them. At his trial, an unnamed Thai woman gave evidence that Dixie had stabbed and raped her in Subico, Western Australia, in June 1998, whilst Dixie was burgling her house. Dixie had yet to be formally charged with this attack, though a DNA sample from the woman's underwear had been matched to him as well. Linda Bowman in recent years has told how Sally Ann's ashes were exhumed in 2013 after cruel people repeatedly desecrated her grave. 
Linda was left having to guard her daughter's resting place after it began attracting absolute fruit loops who would vandalise the grave at night. She told how the grave was damaged four times in six months, including occasions where the headstone was smashed and ghoulish cards were left at the site. On the 11th of September 2008, a memorial was held to mark what would have been Sally Ann's 21st birthday. More than 1,700 people joined the Bowman family outside Primark in North End. North End is the pedestrianised road in central Croydon, which includes entrances to the town's two main shopping centres. The event was organised through Facebook in the hope that they would draw a huge crowd for the remembrance ceremony. Linda said prior to the event, We are really hoping for a big crowd. I won't be there, but my daughters and Sally Ann's cousins will be. I may turn up, but I plan to spend the day at my daughter's grave. I can sit with her and see the balloons from there. Linda said she wanted people to remember her daughter on her birthday by releasing pink balloons with a message inside so that Sally Ann could receive them in heaven. The family can look up in the sky and see how much people are thinking of them, she said. A friend of Sally Ann's sister said, She was an angel, special to all that knew and loved her. She was talented, ambitious and didn't deserve to be taken to heaven so quickly. God must have known that she was special. He only takes the best. So that's it for this week. So if there's one thing that you take away from today's episode, never leave your spouse, friends or family in an argument. Never let the last word be a bad one. Always kiss each other goodnight or goodbye. Please remember if you've enjoyed the show or want to know more, please follow us on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod. That's at True Crime Fix Pod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast, but there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. I'm thoroughly enjoying interacting with everyone on there. And this is where I post the majority of the information on the week's cases. Also a reminder that the podcast is now on Patreon. So visit www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast for further details. I also have an Instagram account. So search true crime fix. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. That's truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest, because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone.